This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The X-Factor Selling System, The Sales Expert's Guide to Selling, and the authors are Thomas F. Lavecchia, MBA, and Deanna Dunsmuir. Hello, Deanna. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us, and hello, Tom. Thanks for having us. Well, we're really looking forward to hearing your innovative approach to sales and business. Uh, you call it even a realistic approach and easy to understand. And I think all of us who want to sell, we need something that we can easily understand and really use uh, effectively. And that's what the X-Factor selling system is all about. Uh, before we get into the details, though, why don't we start with you, Deanna? Uh, start with you to give us a little bit about your background, and then we'll hear from Tom, and then, uh, you know, why you guys wrote the book. Sure, sure. So uh, I'm a recent graduate uh, from Ramapo College in New Jersey. My background is in journalism and uh, did a little bit of uh, political science work as well. And I met Tom right after I had gotten done with college and was looking to start out. And I had the writing experience that he was looking for to do the book. And uh, from there, a few weeks later, we had the title. It was completed, and it's been doing great. Tom? Yeah, well, we, um, we met again. We met and uh, through, um, through some friends, and we had a great opportunity to uh, write a book. And um, I had the book up you know, in my brain. I knew I always wanted to write it. And we had the opportunity, and 12 weeks later after we met, we hit number one on Amazon in this category. Wow, fantastic. Well, you've had quite a background in winning numerous national sales awards. Yeah, well, actually, I've been very fortunate because as an individual uh, contributor, I sold about $100 million of products over my career, and which resulted in 10 national awards, and then literally coached another uh, 10 folks to get number one on stage as well. And once we realized uh, after that point, we knew we had something special. Why would you call your book, which there are tons of books written on sales, why would you call this book The X-Factor Selling System so innovative? Well, because it, it, it's different because most selling systems out there and trading systems focus simply on overcoming objections as to why people uh, buy or don't buy. And I call those mirrored complaints, and most of the time there's frankly excuses. Our book is about finding the motivating factor, what actually gets people to act or desire to act, stimulates that, and then you gain alignment and close for the sale. So it's not about overcoming objections. It's really about stimulate, stimulating them to act and then closing for the business. Because you talk about the four Ps, you know, why do people buy the four Ps? Yes. So we identified four motivating factors, people, product, price, and process. So we look at, okay, for example, somebody who is product motivated is somebody who is concerned about brands or branding. Somebody concerned about price is more of a bottom liner and just someone who focuses on money. So it all depends what the motivating factor is, but one of the four Ps, 
you typically fall under 99.9% of the time. And once you identify the motivating factor, it makes it easier to close for the sale. You say that everyone, everybody has a motivate. <clears throat> you say that everybody has a motivating factor or an X factor. Uh, why is that so important, Deanna? It's important because so often uh, people take what motivates them and projects it onto someone else. So Tom's process is all about removing yourself from the process and really figuring out what motivates that other person. And once you find that out, you can then align your goals for mutual success. So that's why he, he really goes over that motivating factor, that X factor so much, because that's his key to success. Because it all comes back to finding the person's motivating factor mm-hmm. in buying, that buying motivation. That's what you have to find. Right. He always says, uh, don't look at what they say, but uh, what they do or, or how they purchase their buying actions, not what they say, because so often people don't know why they're motivated or why they buy. So he teaches you in this book to ask the right questions to get it out of them, because even so often it's subconscious. People don't know what motivates them to purchase. So he goes over these four categories, again, of people, product, process, and price. And uh, once you figure out which one they fall into, you can then uh, close for the sale. What about these bold statements and sales pitches, Tom? Uh, how do you help us understand how to do that? Well, if done correctly, um, done correctly, it's a very simple four-step process, which, um, again, it's innovative, but it's simple. So uh, once you identify the four Ps, again, it's pretty much an opening. You open with what your alignment, what you want to align to or your um, agenda, if you will, and you finish with a question to find out what's going on. Then from there, you really identify, and that's where the core DX factor is. You really identify what's important to them, but not just what's important, but what motivates them to physically act. Once you identify that X, then you can stimulate, because you know what motivates them, um, how they act, why they act. You stimulate that action, and then that's when you close for the sale. In this system, and again, what makes us different than other systems, a lot of times there's different closes, and it's uncomfortable, and it's a really uh, difficult process to close somebody for a sale, but if done correctly, the close is the easiest part of the X-Factor X factor selling system. A lot of people say, I can't sell. You hear that all the time. And, of course, you know, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. But you, at the same time, you say that anybody can be a salesperson. Yes, they can. Because, again, one, you have to know what your motivating factor is, right? So I just did a, a, a Fox News interview on the same subject. And I got the, the perfect question. I get asked this a lot. So let's just say you are in, uh, you're a technical person. You probably should not be in a relationship-based sales because it's not your forte. However, even though you may not be a people person, if it's technical-based, that gives you time to shine. So that's from your end. You've got to really know how you're wired and what, which P you're motivated by. Then the second part is why anybody can be a salesperson is we're selling every day. Whether you're trying to get out on a poker night, you know, on a Thursday night from your wife, trying to get a two-year-old to go on the potty, you're always selling anyway. So that happens in everyday life. But why anybody can be a salesperson is if they understand what their customer's motivating factor is, it's just simply easy easy, and, um, um, and easy to persuade them to act. So that's what makes you a salesperson, by understanding what motivates somebody and then persuading them to act. It's a really simple process, believe it or not. So the key is learning how to ask the right questions. To get to their extra motivating factor, yes. And once you get to that, then you persuade them to act. That's correct. Deanna, tell us the importance of passion. 
importance, uh, the importance of passion is actually pretty great. Uh, we dedicate a whole chapter to passion and why you need passion in order to motivate someone to do something. And the whole uh, theory behind that is, uh, think about it, you like a book, you like a movie, and you're convincing a friend to go see that movie or buy that book. Because you're passionate about it, you're making great sales points. Uh, you're, you're speaking from a place uh, where you really believe in what you're saying, and that other person then is much more likely to go for it. So we, we kind of say that uh, with passion breeds motivation, so you really need to have passion. And um, Tom actually just wrote an article, How to Sell a Product That You Don't Really Love. And it's, it's pretty funny because um, so often now with the economy, people might be stuck selling a product that they don't feel passionate about. And um, he even has tips on that as well. And the bottom line there is um, to be able to sell a product where you don't uh, feel passionate about it, you could use Tom's process to do so and then sort of say to your next employer, I sold X product that I didn't believe in. What could I do with your product? Probably amazing things. So he sort of gives tips for everyday business, sales environments, as well as his process. But bottom line is, for a long run at a certain place selling a product, you should have passion. Why did you include Dan Caruso in your book? The reason why we included Dan Caruso, I've known him for years, and he's a non-salesperson salesperson. And he got into the position, um, and he needed training. So although I'd like to say um, he would be an example of what great sales training looked like, he's actually an example of a strong salesperson who um, got into it but received very poor sales training uh, on his on his own. So, for example, he went into a job uh, with no sales training and um, just literally was forced into a situation that wasn't great. So by leaving that environment where actually he received poor sales training, he got into an environment where he succeeded, and now he owns his own company, and X-Factor Selling Systems, our company, does consulting uh, for him to this day. Now, you talk about getting into the mind of a sales manager. Why is that so important? Because often it, we, we always feel it's all about me, you know, what's in it for me. But it's really important to understand what your sales leader or your boss is thinking. And if you understand your boss's motivating factor, I believe it makes it easier to do business with him or her. For the simple fact that you understand, hey, um, you get direction from your boss, but if you truly understand why... Um, they're giving you that direction. It makes it easier. And then conversely, if you're a sales leader, you don't just simply just balk direction. You need to understand what motivates your sales representative. So I had about, I probably coached about 100 sales representatives in my career, and you can't coach them all differently. You need to find out which P or what their motivating factor is, get in that direction, and put in there their stimulating factor, and it'll make it easier for you to lead your team, and it'll make you also easier to work with your boss if you follow our system. And you provide seminars for training? We do. We do. We have a seminar coming up in September, uh, in the fall, as well as we're, we're starting an online uh, university, and then you can reach us at any time for uh, private seminars on our website, thesalesexpertusa.com. Well, it sounds like it's all coming together, and it basically, again, gets down to some very easy-to-understand, innovative principles that often people overlook. Simplicity is key, and it just resonates as well with the X-Factor selling system. What are your closing thoughts, Tom and Deanna? Well, I'll let Deanna go first. (laughs) 
Sure. Well, um, I guess my closing thought would be that I hope people check it out. I hope they, they take the time to go on Amazon and purchase a copy of the X-Factor selling system. It's uh, So often I get that it's just for salespeople, or, or basically they ask me, is it just for salespeople? But it's not. Again, we're selling in everyday life, and it teaches you how to motivate others in every situation. So I just urge everyone to check it out, take the time, uh, get it on Kindle, CD, paperback, anything. Uh, Tom. Yeah, and from my perspective, the reason why the book was authored is we really, really, um, our mission, and it's more maniacal about it, is to inspire greatness. So, again, that's why it's the X Factor. We, I can't tell you what you define to be great. Only you know that. That's why it's an X. It's variable. It's always moving. So I would like for people to really identify their desired goal, um, to always be consistent in their actions, always be excellent in what they do, and uh, not only just read our book but to understand its teachings, and again, our goal is simple, to inspire greatness. If we inspire you know, people to be great by reading our book, then we reach our mission in spades. The X-Factor Selling System, Thomas Lavecchia and Deanna Dunsmuir. Tom, tell us how to get your book. Yeah, absolutely. You can find the X-Factor Selling System on Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, and any other uh, major online resource. And we're actually rolling out natural distribution um, this week uh, to local bookstores near you. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Ripples in Opperman's Pond, and the author is 
Doug Zipes, and Doug joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Doug. Hello. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Great to have you with us. Uh, well, this is a thriller. It's a high-stakes thriller set in the world of big money medicine where a chain of unanticipated events culminates in a life-or-death decision twin brothers never thought they would have to make. This uh, oh, sure. sounds like right out of, could be right out of your past. You're a celebrated uh, cardiologist, world-renowned. You know the ins and outs of the pharmacy world. Well, you're right. And uh, a lot of the events that take place in this book are based loosely on events that uh, happened to me in which uh, I participated. And uh, obviously fictionalized them, but nevertheless, there's uh, sufficient reality in what I've written that I think it holds the reader's interest. Well, we all know that the pharmaceutical business, the drug business, is uh, uh, billions upon hundreds of billions of dollars are at stake. Absolutely right. So it's unfortunate that there are those out there that would use it for their own advantage, but we all know that happens in every walk of life, it seems. So give us a little bit more uh, background about yourself, doctor, and uh, tell us why you wrote the book. Well, I'm a cardiologist and have been so for well over 40 years. I've published uh, 800 plus medical articles and uh, 14 or 15 textbooks with multiple revisions. And uh, I wanted at this stage of my life to try a new venue and uh, have all, always been fascinated by the written word and many years ago, read a medical best-selling thriller, and I said to myself, I can do that and do it even better. It turns out it's a bit more difficult than it seems, and uh, I had to learn a whole new way of writing. But nevertheless, that was a goal over the past uh, uh, multiple years and culminated in my first novel, which is called The Black Widows, and then this one, Ripples in Opperman's Pond. This story is loosely based on uh, two trials in which I participated. One was the sudden death of an athlete, and uh, the widow sues the doctor who took care of the athlete, and I defended the physician and uh, proved that it was not malpractice. Uh, and the second was uh, where I was a, a plaintiff's expert uh, against a pharmaceutical company that was alleged to have uh, failed to uh, publicly uh, declare side effects of a drug. Tell us about the twins. Tell us about Dorian and Daniel. Yeah, I, I had fun uh, with uh, twins with the idea of uh, nature versus nurture. So nature being genes that you inherit and nurture being the environmental uh, modulating influences on those genes. And uh, uh, my, my phrase is that uh, uh, nature loads the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. So we have 
uh, identical twins, uh, Dorian and Daniel, uh, who obviously have identical genetic makeup, but turn out very differently in terms of their character and uh, personalities. Uh, in addition, I wanted an opening memorable sentence. I think everybody knows uh, Call Me Ishmael from Mobile's uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Moby Dick, mm-hmm. or it was the best of times, it was the worst of times mm-hmm. uh, from the uh, uh, Tale of Two Cities. So my opening sentence is, uh, we were identical, Dorian and I, but not at all alike. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that will be a a, a memorable first sentence, but uh, who knows how uh, people will view it. So Dorian rescues his twin brother Daniel, and that's yeah. kind of so like they, they that. Gives, that gives uh, them such a bond uh, beyond being obviously identical twins. Uh, right. Um, they start out uh, in uh, an ice skating episode on Opperman's Pond, which is a real pond upon which I ice skated as a youngster in Pleasantville, New York. And uh, they flip a coin to see who will test the early winter ice. And uh, uh, Daniel is the one who does it, falls through the ice, and uh, Dorian saves his life. Uh, And that kind of sets the stage of the interactions between the two brothers who uh, share their toothpaste growing up and uh, their lives uh, uh, from being... Uh, from when they are youngsters to uh, adults. Dorian becomes the head of a multinational pharmaceutical company, and Daniel, a renowned cardiologist. Exactly. And they come together when a uh, an NBA superstar, I've made him uh, here in Indianapolis as a, a member of the Pacers, uh, sprains his ankle, uh, quite badly, and uh, does not respond to existing treatments. And a brilliant but ruthless scientist in Dorian's pharmaceutical company has invented a new uh, anti-arthritis, anti-inflammatory drug uh, that uh, Daniel is able to get from his brother's uh, pharmaceutical company and use to heal the uh, athlete's uh, sprained ankle, restores him back to uh, playing basketball, and uh, the brothers then unite, uh, coming from different uh, professional uh, positions, Uh, Dorian as uh, CEO of the pharmaceutical company, Daniel as a practicing physician, uh, to take care of this NBA player. And then, of course, he dies unexpectedly. Exactly. He has sudden death, and uh, then the uh, entire uh, dominoes uh, begin to tumble and uh, inextricably involve uh, brothers in uh, a whole series of events. In real life, can arthritis drugs cause heart attacks? Uh, Yes, as a matter of fact. uh, One of the drugs that uh, was a a superb arthritis drug is called uh, Vioxx. And uh, that was removed uh, from the market uh, after it was demonstrated to cause heart attacks and 
and possibly strokes as well. And now all of the arthritis drugs like Celebrex and, and so on uh, have what's called a black box warning. That means that uh, the warning part of the drug label indicates that they may cause uh, heart attacks and strokes. So, yeah, that's a, a, a real uh, potential. Now, we have not only, of course, uh, the malpractice suit and a possible loss of a medical license here, but we've got witchcraft. We do, and, and that was so fun to write. Um, and it, it was in part based on my medical school uh, experiences many, many years ago when I had a, um, a physiology um, term paper and I chose to write on uh, witchcraft and the actual medical basis for uh, uh, casting spells. And uh, indeed, if one goes back to uh, some of the origins of uh, uh, the creation of zombies, for example, uh, in uh, Haitian culture, there is uh, a chemical basis for how that can be done. So I have uh, some of that uh, in the novel. One of my um, goals in, in writing is, is verisimilitude. I like to be as truthful and accurate as possible. Uh, space aliens and, 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 uh, these kinds of things don't appeal to me. Uh, so when I write science fiction, uh, it has a greater emphasis on the science than the fiction. And you come away believing, uh, the events because they're, they're just a fraction off the truth. And, and that's what's so fun about uh, doing this and, and particularly writing about the witchcraft here. Well, you stay in real life. We all know about ruthless competition in industry, you know, sports, uh, uh, big business. We all know that. And we also know about the U.S. jury system that has its faults, especially, as you point out, in the malpractice arena. That's exactly right. And and uh, particularly in today of uh, uh, DNA fact-finding, uh, we see that uh, a number of people who are convicted are convicted uh, inappropriately. Uh, they indeed were innocent based on uh, the DNA analysis. Uh, and uh, having interacted with the jury system on multiple occasions in my role as an uh, expert uh, testifier, um, I capitalized on that, and there are two court scenes that uh, uh, parallel a lot of my personal experiences. Uh, there's a, a, a lawyer uh, in the court scenes who is a ruthless individual, and uh, he really is patterned after one of them I've faced. Uh, so the, the two court scenes, I think, have a lot of reality uh, basis uh, for them as well. Why do you use men's names for women? Yeah, that, that's so fun. I, 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 I am an embryonic fiction author 
in cardiology circles, um, pretty much wherever you go, my name is going to be known, at least to some of the cardiologists. But in the fiction area, they say, who's he? Uh, so it's been fun to try to create some sort of an identity in my novels. And two things that, that I've done. One, uh, just for the fun of it, uh, to use a, uh, uh, um, what could be misunderstood as a man's name for a woman. So in uh, my first novel, The Black Widows, I have Francine, and she's called Frankie. Uh, and in this one, it's uh, Jesse, but it's not J-E-S-S-E, it's J-E-S-S-I-E. Uh, the other thing that, that I've done in both novels is that uh, a bad guy is from an opera where the, the bad guy's name in the opera is used in my novel. I'm an opera fan, and it's been fun to, uh, to do that as well. So, you know, you, you have little quirks that, that are just kind of who you are as a novelist. And a theme that runs through your book, you really believe there's some good in most people. Uh, and that's true. Uh, I think that uh, uh, that comes out in uh, both of the books. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's very important when one creates a character to make the character multidimensional. Uh, I think uh, very few people are all bad, and I think very few people are all good. Uh, but there is good in, in everyone, and uh, uh, sometimes you have to plumb the depths to find it, but, but it's there, and uh, I think it comes out in the characters in uh, uh, Ripples as well. We've been talking about Ripples in Opperman's Pond. The author, Doug Zipes. Doug, tell us how to get your book. Well, there are several ways. One is uh, iUniverse is the, uh, the publisher, uh, and they're in Bloomington. Um, uh, another is uh, Amazon, uh, and it's uh, available there in print or uh, electronically. Um, and uh, uh, the easy thing to do is my website, which is uh, dougzipes.com, and uh, the books are prominently displayed there with uh, um, uh, click a way as to uh, how you can order it. DougZipes.com, Z-I-P-E-S. Well, thank you, Doug, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks for talking with me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. 
This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Handbook for Closet Conservatives, How to Succeed in a Liberal World, and the author is Lefton Wright, and he joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Lefton. Well, hello. Good to be here. Great to have you with us. And, of course, I think the title says it all, but you want to help us what to say, not to say, what to do, not to do, but have a good time while doing it or not doing it. I mean, that sums up your book, doesn't it? It sums up the book, but it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy when, when, when you live in an area where you're uh, surrounded by, by liberals who, who know it all and uh, kind of scoff. They scoff at you. They look down at you if you, if you come up with a, with a different opinion. So being a little lonely, I figured <laughs> I'd write this book and reach out to others and say all the things I really I want to say, and uh, maybe maybe that'll help other people. Well, you have to be crafty. There you go, crafty. This book is, and uh, you know we're going to talk about some of the issues and your view on them. Before we do, though, Lefton, tell us a little bit about your background, and then of course, uh, I guess your great meeting with Jimmy Carter. Oh, Jimmy Carter, yeah. Well, my background, my background, uh, advertising, I was an ad man in New York, Madison Avenue, you know, the things that, uh, that you read about, that you see on, on TV now. Um, and from that, uh, I, I kind of retired. Whereupon we, uh, we got a place in Florida, drove back and forth, and once, but stopped along the way, which is a, another thing. At least I got to know other people. You know, we didn't just stop at uh, a motel on the highway and go on. And one time, uh, we we went to Plains, Georgia. We figured, well, you know, we were going to visit people in Atlanta anyhow, so we went to Plains, Georgia, and went to the uh, the church service. And there was and there was Jimmy Carter. They said how lucky we were because very often, you know, <laughs> he wasn't there. So, so there he was, Jimmy Carter himself. And he got up after after the services, and he said, "I know." Well, first of all, he said. I've just come back from Dubai. Does anybody know <laughs> where Dubai is? <laughs> you know, thinking we were all idiots, but uh, but we did. A number of us. Oh yeah, the Emirates and so forth. 
and he talked about his great relationship with uh, the Dubai people. It turned out later, I read, that Dubai was really a center of money laundering uh, to get money to Al-Qaeda, but uh, we didn't know it then. Anyhow, uh, Jimmy said, after after the service, he said, I know you would all like to meet Rosalind and me. <laughs> so after, right now, he said, you can you line up you know, behind the church, and we'll come out, and you can take pictures with us and, uh, and, and do that. And we thought, well, that's terrific. So we, we went out and back. We lined up, and there was Rosalind, there was Jimmy, met my wife and me. And I said to him, you know, he said, you're the last Democrat I voted for. I couldn't resist it. <laughs> he said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so that was, that was my encounter with Jimmy Carter, and, and it was worth it. So why did you switch from and leave the Democrat Party? Oh Lord! Well, there was a, there were there were there were limits. I mean, I started to realize that uh, you know I'm paying all these taxes and it's going it's going to people on welfare. People on welfare don't have to work. I mean, they're they're really sort of discouraged from working. You know, and I this is you know I was working in New York at the time, and you could see it all around you. And uh, I, you could see the, the the crime. This was before Giuliani. You could see how the city was getting kind of dangerous, and you would hear about the the rights that criminals have, and like they couldn't be touched. You know, they could they could go down, they'd walk down the streets with their boomboxes blaring away, and you just kind of accepted it. You, you cringe is is what you did. Uh, you know, you saw this this happening all around you. You saw. Um, well, over here in, in Yonkers, they, there were these big, uh, this pressure to put public housing, you know, in, in good places. Or there, and they finally did, you know, they, they, and neighborhoods just, just got destroyed. Busing, I could see, busing happened in the next town to us. Perfectly fine school system, but it just went to hell, you know, once, once they, they brought in people who really didn't belong there. So, uh, little by little, I got the message. <laughs> And, and I and I switch, and I mention this to people, and I'm figuring, well, they'd all they'd understand, they'd figure this out too, they'd feel the same way. But no, no, it's uh, that didn't happen. They they kind of stuck to their uh, uh, their their beliefs. It's like a you know, a chip was embedded in them, you know. So that anyhow, at that point, I switched over and became a kind of the the lone uh, the lone conservative uh, in the group. And when you voted for Ronald Reagan, you thought you'd be punished? I felt guilty, yeah, yeah. It took an awful lot to do that. I mean, it took an awful lot, yeah. But it worked out. I, I, and so I, the second time, I couldn't wait to vote for him because, you know, I thought he'd done a great job. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And other people went, well, they went halfway. I did know a couple of other people. They went as far as to vote. I think Anderson was the, the third party at that time. He came in. And they actually, uh, they went that far, but I went all the way. I figured, oh, look, you know, we got to do something. But yes, I felt guilty. I felt, uh, I've, I've broken with, <laughs> with tradition, you know. So, but, yes. so, so you see a little humor as a deadly thing to liberals? Well, they, they can't take it because they, they, they're, they're serious, you know, about, uh, about their beliefs. You, you can't really, you can't kid around. They, um, well, take this, uh, you know, like, like global warming thing, that which they're so uh, adamant about. 
And I said, I said, well, and I'd exactly, you know, you're spending billions. This country is spending billions. Uh, what are we trying to do with global warming? Are you trying to stop it? Are you trying to make it less warm? You know? <laughs> are you trying to delay it? What is the point? Because whatever you do, you know, it's going to get warmer. The, the climate has been changing for trillions of years, long before anybody had a, an automobile, long before anybody knew what, you know, had gasoline. It's, it's been going on, and this is not, you're not going to do anything about it. And with all the money you spend, I mean, you're going to have great, wonderful meetings in exotic places around the world. You can make a career out of it, which I think, you know, they're doing. But the, the, the response is, well, we've got to do something. You know, there's this feeling, there's a, there's a fear. There's the fear that somehow, you know, those, that not only those polar bears are going to be drowning, <laughs> but that Florida is going to go under the ocean and, they, they've been scared, you know, they've been scared. And I said, look, you know, it's, it hasn't happened yet. And, uh, you know, and actually uh, climate change has benefited people. From what I see, you know, the northern regions, I think it's Greenland and so forth, land that was rock hard before, now has become fertile and they're actually they're growing crops on it. It's been beneficial. So, um, and look at all the joys of, however, it's, it's hard to make, it's, it's hard to make, Make an impression. I think what I advise, and I'm not going to, you know, well, go along with it and sort of get the, get the, invest in the companies that are going to benefit from this. Right. You know, buy, buy what Nancy Pelosi is buying. <laughs> exactly. So, and that might, <laughs> that's the only way I can get around that. Just take advantage of it. What about racism? That, that seems to be everywhere. If you don't agree with President Obama, you're a racist. I think the word racism should, that there's a law I think should, should happen. I don't, you know, generally laws I'm not for because they take away you know, your freedom. I would like to see a law banning the use of the word racism. I think if you couldn't say it, <laughs> you'd get right to the point. I mean, if somebody uh, attacked somebody, it, you'd get to the cause of it. You know, what, did they do it? Didn't they do it? Uh, if, if, you know, somebody gets shot, whatever they do, if you eliminate the word racism, that just, that just sends you off on a tangent that has nothing to do with it, with, with the issue. But, uh, it's, it's a democratic, um, what can I say, mainstay. They, they use it because it's, it's what they've got, you know. It's, uh, it's how they get votes and they have, they keep it going. They keep, you know, they, they keep agitating it and it's not there. You know, there isn't, a job that we conceive, there isn't a job, there isn't a place that, that, uh, minorities can't live or if, it's just, uh, they, they can be president of the United States, obviously. In fact, it's beneficial, I mean, for them, because uh, there are people I know who will vote, who voted for Obama, because they're just thrilled to have a black, uh, in office. Right. Regardless right. of his point of view, I mean, they vote for him either way. He could be a leftist or rightist. It's just delightful that he's there. It shows how good we are. So at any rate, as I say, I would love to get racism out of it. I mean, just not use the word. And then, then, then you can get maybe to the, to the heart of things. Well, there's a lot of colors that you see or hear about in the news. Of course, there's the red political, there's the blue political. But boy, the big thing, the big color that seems to raise its delightful, ugly head a lot is green. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Well, 
what do we do about that? <laughs> I mean, green, it seems, you know, green fuel, environmentally safe. It's got green all over it. And I mean, there's a lot of good stuff for that, but it, it is seemed to be almost become a religion as well. It's a religion and people still, because I was talking, I was talking to a fellow the other day and he asked me, are you green? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, well, uh, yes and no. I mean, it all depends. I mean, because I, I, he said, well, he, he believes in using wind power and solar. And I said, you know, they've been working on that now for a lot of years. You know, they've been working on these things, and they still find that the, that, that the oil, you know, gasoline, is the best thing that they've got. I mean, works the most efficiently, and especially with fracking, which is a dangerous word to use. <laughs> I said, we apparently have an unlimited supply of it. We have enough to make gasoline really cheap. And make ourselves independent, energy independent, so we don't have to apologize to uh, to the, the the Middle Eastern countries. You know, we don't have to count out to them. I said that's you know that's the reality of it. But no, you know they're still working on sun power and wind power and all of that. And some of it might be fine, but it's it's, it's it ain't going to be what uh, what you know as good as what we've got. It'd be interesting. Uh, you know, to... Hydrocarbons do work. And uh, they've made it more efficient, and that's that's fine. I mean, the more mileage you can get per gallon, that's a that's that's terrific. But don't uh, spend zillions of dollars, you know, with cilantro, and and you're just going to get taken. You do, you know. Right. That's well, my that's my green observation. Yeah, well, it is, it's and, and you do. know, yeah. and then you go into. I was uh, reading where you know the the. Uh, uh, Getting fuel made from corn is really bad for the, the, our engines, you know, but it stretches. It turned out that way, <laughs> yeah. See, that's where, yeah, right. That's where uh, I took my advice and shouldn't have because I invested in <laughs> ethanol <laughs> in a company that's big on that. Yes, right. And now you read, even in the New York Times, they did a whole article on the uh, folly of, uh, of ethanol and that it's not working. It's bad for the engines. You're getting... Worse mileage than before. It's it's just it's a disaster. In addition to creating shortages of of corn, red rising, uh, driving the price up for food, you know, creating a problem there. Yes, that's true. Even the but it's funny. Even the New York Times, you know, they were the ones who pushed it, and now they tell you how dumb it is. So, but nothing happens. <laughs> it doesn't seem to matter. Right. I think there are enough people who, who whose careers depend upon. Uh, so-called alternative energy, that it's a long way, a long time before they're going to back down, you know, before they will admit there was, there was truly a mistake. So as we view the 2016 election, what do you think of Hillary being the next president? Oh, God. Well, see, now that's where, um, I, again, at, at, at the tennis court, this, uh, this came up, and the fellow said, he said, oh, I think, you know, she's been doing a good job. And I said, you mean even after Benghazi? And he said, well, everyone's entitled to a mistake. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I mean, like the captain of the Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, so, and he said, well, I think uh, let's get back on the court, you know, (laughs) because they don't want to hear that. I couldn't believe it. Everyone's entitled to a mistake. I mean, four four people were killed. Right. Yeah. And uh, where where was she? Well, where was Obama? I think that's part of the that's an awful thing. Uh, you know, I remember Watergate, where the press, the media, 
they they went after Nixon every single day. They didn't uh, right. uh, pull back. They didn't protect the president. Here they are. I mean, here to me, it's quite obvious that uh, the, the man at the top, he's our commander in chief. Where was he at Benghazi? I mean, who isn't he the one who gave the orders not to do, not to come to their rescue? I mean, that's his. That's where his job is there. Yet they won't tell you where he was. You know. But it seems it seems who gave uh, what's her name that rice lady the the talking point right. go on chosen yeah. and and blame it all on that on that film well some they do they've never said who told her what to say well I would you know I would question the president he's in charge I assume he's in charge <laughs> so just in just in the closing moments that we have left in uh, you say don't even try to convince a liberal that he or she is wrong just show how ridiculous they are make it funny and maybe they'll get it <laughs> maybe they'll get it yeah if you can just uh just well go into the recycling thing you know how people you can have a nervous breakdown trying to figure you know what to put where you know sometimes they get that i will say cuz they're getting you know, I have a daughter-in-law in San Francisco, and you you go in front of their house, and there are these hundreds of cans, you know, hundreds of containers, and every day there's a new decision of what to put where, and uh, you know, you can you can it, it can be a greater crime putting plastic in a in a than uh, than, than committing murder. You know, <laughs> it's unbelievable, but uh, then they get it. There's a little thing there. We're tired of it, you know. And that's that's kind of a, a a point where maybe you can re, you can reach them. So, what more can I tell you? We've uh, been listening to Left and Right. He is the author of his book, The Handbook for Closet Conservatives: How to Succeed in a Liberal World. Left and tell us how to get your book. You get my book. I understand Amazon has it. I'd like uh, they'll get it, and uh, Barnes and Noble. Is there any other way? Uh, I think you can go right to iUniverse. Right, but, you can go right uh, to iUniverse.com and get it. As iUniverse.com, well. mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm more the author. I don't get, get involved in, the, <laughs> <laughs> in those details of selling. But uh, I was impressed that Amazon has them, and apparently it's doing okay. Well, great. Well, it should. It's uh, the handbook for closet conservatives. Thank you so much, Lefton, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. It was a delight. I appreciate it. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.